0: you're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester England Well we come to the end of uh, this cycle of judgment in the book of Hosea um, you're remember as we've been looking at this week by week uh, that it can have this repetitive nature to it or at least this heaviness that every week we come and, and there seems to be at some point things could just relent just a little bit. But Hosea seems to have grabbed us by the collar of the shirt and is holding us and keeping us and forcing us to look at the depth and depravity of sin and so we come in chapter 13, and much the same, the, the prophet will show us the ugliness of sin and its consequences, both temporal, what will happen in the near future, and what will happen in eternity for those outside of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's in the words of Shakespeare once more unto the breach, as we go and look at Hosea 13. So hear these words of Holy Scripture. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am, like, I am to them like a lion, Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and its fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And thus ends the reading of the Word of God. It is a difficult section filled in a book of difficult chapters. Uh, To come to that, it almost seems to offer no hope. But never fear, as we'll come to chapter 14, there is this call to repentance. And that, as we've seen in the book of Hosea, that that call to repentance is a legitimate call, that Israel can come back to the Lord. They can return and find forgiveness. But this evening, what we're looking at and what we're seeing is, again, this idea that sin does indeed have consequences to it. Sin has consequences to it, as we'll see throughout this chapter. Uh, This chapter begins in the first three verses with this almost like another eulogy for Ephraim. It's speaking of Ephraim as if he's already dead and speaking of his present day offspring as if they are already dead. In verses four through eight, we have this righteous anger of Yahweh against his people. And then it concludes in nine through 16 with the fall of Ephraim or the fall of the northern tribe. And so it begins with this eulogy in verse 1, Ephraim is dead, Ephraim has died. It juxtaposes here Ephraim as the leader of these 10 tribes, that he is the the strongest and the largest of the tribes. He's the one who is by nature seems to be the natural ruler, the one uh, who is the strongest, possibly the loudest, that he was powerful and he was exalted to this position of power. But then Ephraim incurs this guilt by worshiping false gods and he dies. And his modern day offspring in verses two through three are following the same pattern that their forefather did. Present day Israel is not only not better than Ephraim of the past, but actually they are working and they are industrious but not in holiness. They are industrious in their sin. Uh, You'll note here in, in verse two how it speaks of them crafting metal images. And note the words it uses, these idols, they're skillfully made. They're crafted of silver. So these are not just uh, little household trinkets. These are things that the people are gathering together. They're using all of their craft and their skill. They're, they're using all of these gifts of the Lord, not just the, the intelligence needed to make these, but also the silver, which was not native to Israel, and it would had to be imported. And so they're using all of these gifts of God to industriously make idols to worship. There's all of this work going into making these idols. It reminds me back when I was in high school or secondary school, we had these graphing calculators. I don't know if parents of children now have to see these 100-pound calculators that can do all of these things on it. But what I remember was quite funny was that I had friends who would program these games, but they weren't games. They were actually cheat codes and cheats. Uh, and notes for taking tests. They spent all this time developing these fake games that hid inside them notes for their tests. And I'm looking on at this going, like, the amount of work it took you to make that is probably exponentially higher than just studying for the test. And here we seem to have the same thing, that in reality, it's much simpler just to worship Yahweh. They don't have to make these idols. They don't have to do these things. And also, Yahweh brings with it all of these blessings to the people, whereas they're putting all of their effort into something that is false, that is not truly there, and that will cause them ultimate destruction. And note the way that Hosea uh, seems to bring up this potentially a a proverb here, that it's said of those who make these idols, those who offer human sacrifices, kiss calves. It seems like it's probably potentially a derogatory statement here. Kiss calves, meaning those who worship Baal, and it's possible that what is happening here is that the worship of another false god, Molech, was often done by, the, by also sacrificing uh, humans, often children, to Molech in order to gain his favor. That what's possibly happening here is that the worship of Molech and the worship of Baal are being merged together. They're taking the worst of, of all of these cults and bringing them together. We know that there were many Israelite kings, actually, who worshiped Molech and who would sacrifice their own children to the fires of Molech in order to gain his favor. And I think ultimately, really, what we're seeing here is just think about how far Israel has fallen, that we're not talking about a pagan nation, we're talking about the Lord's people who are engaged in the sacrifice of humans in order to placate a false god. And so the Lord says through his prophet, therefore, because of all of this, because of all of this, they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew, like the chaff, and like smoke from a window. In chapter 13, Ephraim, uh, sorry, Hosea seems to enjoy using analogies throughout this. And just think of the way in which he uh, uh, alludes to Israel, the present day Israel. He brings out four things that are just uh, things that have uh, impermanence. Things that are just vapors, they're they're mists, they're smoke, they're chaff, all of these things that quickly fade away. I mean, today we can just think of the the mist that's on the ground, and right when you you get through the later part of the day, it's completely gone, or when you watch a, a fire burning as the smoke drifts up, it doesn't take very long before there's just no more smoke. It just dissipates into the night sky. And I think that the picture that Hosea is driving at is that the people who are doing this type of worship are becoming like what they worship. Hosea is constantly trying to bring out, as indeed all the prophets are, that that you are and you will be like what you worship. If you want to worship an idol, right? this is a a non-entity. Yes, there may be a physical item here for you to look at, but behind that is something that isn't real, that cannot do anything to help you, something that was a created thing that cannot care, cannot rescue, cannot help, and cannot save. It is impotent, and it's impermanent. It's the exact opposite of who God is, eternal and unchangeable. And here the people are pictured as they, they worship that which is not eternal, something that which is created, something that will fade away and the people themselves seem to be, as it were, just fading away. And certainly Hosea's point, indeed, again, as the rest of the prophets, is that where does idolatry end up leading us? I mean, ideology, it it will lead to nothingness. It'll lead nowhere. It's ultimately pointless. But I think Hosea is bringing up something even greater than that. Hosea is bringing up this idea of the the context of the covenant where life and death uh, speak of something even bigger, right? Obedience to the covenant leads to blessing. It leads to fellowship. It leads to being in the land. It's a, a picture of life everlasting that will culminate with the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus refers to it simply as eternal life. But then think of where disobedience, it leads to cursing, it leads to casting out, it leads to a loss of fellowship with God, ultimately it leads to death. You can think of the way in which God speaks to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And what happens then? They are cast out of God's presence, never able to return that way. And so we think of the ways in which the Bible moves even that metaphor forward, that death will actually ultimately culminate in the lake of fire that we see in Revelation, where death and Hades, where the fallen angels and the damned are cast off forever. Jesus speaks of this as eternal death, not a point of non-existence, but a continuation of existence in a state of death, in a state of separation. And what's going to happen to Israel is they are going to be exiled. And that is a picture, a small picture of eternal realities. That their exile is going to have that feeling of eternal death. It's going to have a feeling of of hell to it. That they are going to be cast out of the presence of the Lord, cast out of the land and facing God's judgment. And this picture in the Old Testament is, is trying to help us to see, as God is speaking to his people, the eternality, or the, the eternal realities that are behind this. These things become clearer when we turn the pages uh, to the Gospels. Jesus is constantly saying, those who believe will have everlasting life, while those who do not will have everlasting judgment. I think we all can say that John 3.16 is a, it's a wonderful verse full of hope that all who believe will have everlasting life. But if you just go down to verse 18, verse 18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He is condemned already. His sins are still there and he will face the judgment of God. And in Hosea 13, we move from the first three verses to the next four through eight, which speaks of God's righteous anger. And again, note with the way in which God responds to Israel and to to Israel's idolatry by reminding them of who he is. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you knew no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. In contrast to the worthlessness of idols, Here, Yahweh reminds them that before you knew of Baal, you knew me. I was your God long before you you, you even knew that this Baal character even existed. In many ways, God is just pointing out that Baal is sort of the new God on the block here. That long before that, there was me. But he goes further than that. He says, you knew, you know Presently, no other God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Hosea has been using this idea of knowing and knowledge. This is not just knowledge of God existing, but knowing in a deep relationship in the way in which the Bible speaks of a husband knowing his wife. There's a sense of deep and intimate fellowship. And God is here saying that you knew no other God but me. And verse 5, he was the one who was in the wilderness, in the land of drought. In many ways, it's almost just simply God is saying, what has Baal done for you? What what has Baal done? I'm actually thinking through the the, the entirety of the Old Testament, trying to think of anything that is ever attributed to Baal. And really, the only thing that ever comes to mind is the, the battle for supremacy on the mountain, when Elijah goes head to head with the prophets of Baal, and all that happens is Baal loses spectacularly. But then you think about the God who was there. This is what makes this contrast even bigger to think of Baal who has done nothing, but God who has done everything, right? Where where was Baal in the wilderness versus where was God? Did God, did, did Baal provide miraculously for them or was it Yahweh who gave them bread and meat and water? Was it Baal who caused their clothing to never wear out, or was it God? And who was it who brought them safely to the promised land? God or Baal? And this is simply what idolatry is. Or we can just change the word Baal and just insert any type of modern-day idolatry And it does seem to make a a nearly one-to-one correspondence. If we were to take the the word bail and change it for money, for power, for drugs, for fame, for whatever it is that we find could be something that could help and to save us, something that we trust in over and above the Lord. Hosea really would be saying, just stop for a moment and honestly examine those things in comparison to God. Can any, any of them save you? I mean, just imagine for a moment that that you're standing uh, in your incredibly uh, wealthy house with all of your money with bank accounts filled. You're famous and wealthy and powerful, and there's a tsunami coming. This huge wave is rising higher and higher, and there you're standing on the balcony of this mansion with all of this money, wealth, and fame. And can any of it help you in that moment? I mean, just think for a moment, is that money that's, now all digital, can it help you float, right? Can all that fame and power, can you survive on that and eat that to live? Will fame come rushing to save you from the rushing waters? I mean, in that moment, can anything save you that you trusted in? That's simply what God, through his prophet, is reminding these people that, that I am the one who has saved, I am the one who can save, and I am the one who does save. And these things that you are putting your hope in are going to fail you. And again, as Hosea keeps reminding them, not only are they going to fail, but they're going to fail spectacularly. When we see that, we move to verses 6 through 8. We, we move from seeing God as the Savior to God as the destroyer. I mean, think of the the graphic way. There's this transition in verse six that speaks of the people. As soon as they became filled, their hearts were lifted up and they forget me, God says. As as soon as they become uh, full of food, as soon as they become safe and security, as soon as they have prosperity and peace and abundance, they turn from the giver of those good gifts uh, to the gifts themselves. I think ultimately what's happening here is that they want to be the captain of their own fate. They want to be in charge. They want to control their own world and and looking at all their prosperity around them, they're thinking they're doing a a pretty good job of it. That they're relatively in control of everything that's happening about them. That what use do they have for God at this point? Because in contrast to that, when you are the, the captain of your own fate, You're the one who calls the shots. You're the one who tells yourself what you're able to do and not do. Whereas if God truly is in control, then he requires obedience. He requires trust. And in the face of that, he can't actually be seen. And is he really there? Or did we or did Israel just get exceedingly fortunate at some point? They probably are thinking, maybe these are good things because of our industry, because we've done them ourselves. All of these good things that we have are because we're good people. and Look at what we can do. And so they forgot God. They, they didn't know him. He was forgotten in the day-to-day life of God's own people. And again, I think this actually sounds incredibly modern, doesn't it? It sounds as if Hosea could be at the center of Gloucester preaching this very same thing, that when their hearts were filled and lifted up, the people forgot me. I just think of modern Britain, modern America, right? They're looking around at all that's happened, surely we have done this. Surely it's our industry, it's our, our technology, it's our intelligence. It's all about us. We have done all of these things and they give us safety when we feel that we can be in control. And again, God responds to this as they have forgotten me. He says in verse 7, so or therefore or because of this God is not going to let this stand he's not going to let this continue on And once again Hosea lists for us all of these characteristics or all of these analogies these five uh, potentially five different animals in order to just get a picture of the ferocity of God's wrath I mean think about this he says God says I will be like a lion to them. He says, I will be like a leopard to them. I will be like a female bear who's been bereft of her cubs. I will be like a lion. This is possibly like a female lion uh, because the the words translated in the ESV, uh, both are lion, but they're two separate Hebrew words. So it's likely, even if I don't know why, that Hosea envisions two separate separate, uh, animals potentially here but also then wild beasts. And almost if you could think about it, just for a moment to to say probably what Hosea is driving at is that imagine just combining all of these together. Imagine for a moment that you take the ferocity and the power of a male lion. If you've ever seen nature documentaries and the way in which uh, the lion is, is ferocious, but then think of the speed and the cunning of a leopard. Suddenly, not only now do we have a lion that's incredibly fast and cunning, but the strength of a leopard and a lion. But I think now, all of a sudden, this animal that's fast and strong and powerful is also in a blinding rage. As you can imagine, a mother bear whose cubs have been stolen from her. And then uh, the image possibly of a female lion, the one who stalks and hunts for food. In this case, the food being Israel. And then a wild beast that will rip them open. So we have all of these images for us to help us to get a picture of the fury of God's wrath. When we think about this, I think there's several things we can try to understand when we we have to come uncomfortably close to God's wrath. The Bible doesn't shy away from it. The Bible pictures it repeatedly. And actually, as we come to this, and we think often of God as this heavenly father, which he is, but he's also a righteous judge. And we think of his righteous anger, unrestraint, if you will, flowing forth against that which he hates and abhors sin and sinners. I mean, it's just flat out uncomfortable to sit and think of that. The unbridled rage of Yahweh when he's absolutely just and absolutely right to execute vengeance. You know, in some sense, it can draw our minds to thinking of the way C.S. Lewis portrays Jesus, if you will, as a lion. He says those famous words that he's good but not safe. One commentator I read, though, made the, made the illusion, though, that yes, well, that's true. We would have to imagine Aslan devouring the Pevensey children, would be the picture here. And actually, Lewis does seem to bring this up in The Dawn Treader. When the boy Eustace, who's now turned into a dragon, Aslan comes and, and starts ripping apart the dragon scales in order to, to take away the sin of this boy. there's this story I remember reading, and again, I can't verify if it's true. It could be one of those pastor stories, but they sound really good, and the analogy, I think, helps us see. The story is told of, of two men who are in the forest, and they're walking along, and all of a sudden, they can hear from a ways off that a, a forest fire is now coming and sweeping through the forest, and so they're, they're stuck. They, they can't get out of the forest at this point, and so what do they do? One of them lights a fire on the ground to burn and scar the area right around them. And so that there they, they, they stand in the midst of that burnt and consumed area as the fire then comes sweeping through and burns up all, the, all that is around them. And there they stand in the midst of that safe because the ground had already been consumed. And again, whether it's a true story or not, it, it helps us to see the way in which Jesus Christ took God's wrath upon the cross. That it, it really, I think, Hosea 13 helps us get a greater sense of what Jesus actually did. Because we often say that, that it, you know, it becomes easy for us to say that he took upon us, for us, the wrath of God. And we just say that as if we're talking about the weather. But Hosea really shows us what it means to speak of God's wrath that that wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that all of those who are in Christ would not face it. Again, think of the way the Gospels speak of fleeing from the wrath to come. So in verses 9 through 16, we get the the immediate fall of Ephraim, of the northern tribe that is going to fall. And we get three pictures here of Ephraim now being leaderless, in 9 through 11, being senseless or stupid in verses 12 through 14, and being landless in verses 15 through 16. In verses 9 through 11, uh, we're given this picture. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. The Lord here pictured as a helper, and Israel pictured as that which is doing the exact opposite, running from the one that would help them, fleeing to that which cannot. They trusted in kings, they trusted in their princes, they trusted in their rulers, they trusted in anything but God. And so God here brings up this and reminds them of this time in the past when he gave them a king, when the people desired to have a king to be like the nations. And he gives them Saul as this king who is really not good. And here he says, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath, speaking of the way in which the, the Northern dynasty has come, er, is come or will come to an end. That God is removing all of these support structures in Israel's life. Their economic prosperity is about to go. Their, their leadership is about to go. They won't have a ruler to defend them anymore. And even their own security is going to be taken from them as they're driven from the land. And this is brought out as Israel just being a senseless or, or, or stupid child. Uh, it speaks to him as an unwise son, that the pangs of childbirth are on him, seeming to mix the metaphors there of the woman giving birth, but also uh, Ephraim as the, the child who just refuses to be born. That there in the womb, he just says, no, I'm not going to be born. Uh, and in a sense, that he—he he is, uh, the, his, his name means double fruitfulness, and he's here putting himself in a position that could actually get him killed. That he is an unwise son, and indeed, that's what he's doing. That's what the northern tribe is doing. They're constantly putting themselves into a position where they can get themselves killed. He's an unwise child. But also it speaks about the way in Eph, that Ephraim's sin is bound up, his sin is kept in store. We actually just heard this morning wonderfully Psalm 32 about our transgressions being forgiven, our sins being atoned for in a sense there, that our sins are, are being forgotten by God. Or Psalm 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But here the the picture actually is God has taken their sins and put them into a box as evidence for later to be opened and exposed, that their sins are being kept and being remembered. Especially when you you bring that to Psalm 32, it brings up a, a very dangerous and scary situation to think of the Lord remembering all of our sins instead of our sins being cast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, this becomes a, a very famous passage quoted by Paul in the New Testament. But here in, in verse 14, we get the way it's set up. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? When Paul's using these in the New Testament, it becomes a taunt against death. Death no longer has power over the believer because Christ has conquered death. Here, though, when Hosea is using it, he's using it in a way in which these, I I believe, are are rhetorical questions. The answer is actually no. That in the immediacy here, that when God says, "Will will I redeem them from death and from the grave? The answer is no. They are going to face the consequences of their sins. You see at the end of verse 14, compassion is hidden from my eyes. The word can also be relenting. Relenting is hidden from my eyes. And so you have this way in which Hosea is saying this to the people that death will come for you. The grave will come for you. There is no escaping that. So how does Paul take this in the New Testament and seemingly almost to transform its meaning? I think the answer is simply that Paul is is changing who this verse is applying to. Here the the verse speaks about the way in which the, the northern tribe will face death and the grave. Paul is then applying that in the New Testament against death itself. That through Jesus Christ, through him who conquers the grave, that now Paul takes this as a taunt against death itself. That death has died in the death of Christ. That it no longer has power over the believer. Well, Israel also is pictured as one who is going to die and be removed from the land. Verses 15 and 16 speak about Samaria bearing their guilt. It speaks of the east wind, the wind of the Lord. Uh, this is, again is that wind that flows in off of the deserts, that it is a strong, powerful, hot, and actually destructive wind. And it's raging throughout the northern kingdom. Their fountains are dried up, their springs are parched, and this wind actually strips the treasury of all its precious things. This is just a, a metaphor for God's judgment in the coming of the Assyrian Empire that will sweep through like this wind of judgment, destroying everything in its path. Israel will bear its guilt, and this section ends with the rebellion that Samaria has continually done against God meeting its end with the sword and in graphic ways, it speaks of the imminent conquest of Assyria over Israel. That From the sin of, of their kings, from the sin of their leaders, from the sins of this people, that it's going to have real damaging consequences on the entire nation. That their little ones will be killed, their pregnant women ripped open. That they're speaking here of, of, of just a, a total annihilation, it seems, of the northern kingdom. Well, God has said he will not utterly destroy them in chapter 11, but here we have the fact that the fall is actually going to happen. So a couple of things as we come to verses 9 through 16, which chapter 13 in general is not an easy chapter, verses 9 through 16 seem to be an even more difficult part of this section. But I think something that helps us is to remember that verses 9 through 16, they do speak about a real event that happened in history. In 722 BC, the Assyrians actually level Israel. And the judgment of God really did come upon them. The wrath of God was poured out at that moment. But again, Hosea reminds us of God's promises of his covenant and how though they were destroyed there, that the people were not actually utterly destroyed, that, they would, that some, there would be a remnant that would live on. So how do we understand Hosea 13 this evening, besides being depressed? You know, I do wonder, and you can debate with me afterwards, whether it's harder for you to hear this or harder for me to preach it. Maybe it's just hard for all of us. But it almost seems to me as I I was preparing this, as what we've heard about the mercy of God, that to come to chapter 13, it does seem as as if God is just relentlessly pursuing his people. How do we put mercy, the mercy of chapters 2 and 3 and 11, together with this relentlessness of God? I almost want to ask the question, is God loving and caring or is God angry and judgmental? You almost want to sit Hosea down and just say, which one is it? Who is this God? And Hosea would turn and he would say, he's both. He's both. God is loving, but God is holy. God is caring. As we've seen throughout the book of Hosea, I would argue that Hosea has some of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament concerning the nature and the love that God has for his people. But, But also God brings judgment something we've seen in Hosea. And again, as we dwell on this this evening, for the Christian right, to be remembered that the prophets are, are not, in general, attacking the pagan nations. There are prophets who are doing that, but in, on average, most of the prophets have their eyes set upon the people of God. And what they're saying, what they're constantly reminding the people is that holiness is not optional to the Christian life. That's the problem Israel faced. They failed to trust God. They failed to be obedient to his commands. They, they failed to follow him, to know him, and to love him. I mean, really, ultimately, we could say that that's what holiness is in a nutshell. That's what Jesus says. It's loving God and loving neighbor. But that's ultimately what holiness is. And we've seen throughout Hosea that this is exactly the opposite of what Israel did. And so I think there is a stern warning for us as Christians that holiness is something that is a a part of our life, a part of what we're to pursue, not in a way to earn God's love, but to be reminded of what it means to be a part of his people. That once we're in Jesus Christ, right, he has taken all of our sins. Yes, we're going to continue to sin after that, but that should never be something that defines us to be a part of who we are, to be people that enjoy continually sinning. We should be those who grieve and mourn over our sin, who seek constantly to repent of our sin and to find and to renew that fellowship. Again, to take Psalm 32 and apply it through all all of our life. But also, as we come to this passage... We should not forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, right? For the Christian, what has happened is that the wrath of God has fallen upon Christ, that he would not fall upon us. But before we close, just to think for a moment of what this text speaks for those not in Christ. For those who are not Christians. I think we need to be reminded of a few things here. If you're not a a believer, if you're not a a Christian, if your sins have not been imparted to Jesus Christ, if you stand in your sins and will face the righteous wrath of God. I mean, we need to just remember for a moment, we who are sinful, we desire justice regularly. I mean, you can think of horrible stories of, of a child being murdered. We want justice to be done. We do not want to live in a society that allows such things. Right now, as we're watching on the international stage, we, we yearn for justice for Ukraine. We do not want to see them invaded. We want Russia to be stopped, right? we, we want to live in a world in which justice flows forth. And if that's what we want, and that's what we desire, how much more so does God who isn't infected with sin? who is perfectly holiness, perfect in all he is, why would he not desire justice? And if that's the case, if that's the case, then why should we expect God or why should we assume God is this uncaring force that is unconcerned with the world? Therefore, right, Hosea would say, therefore, if you are not in Christ, you will rightly face the wrath of God. You'll rightly face it, and it will be terrible. But all throughout Hosea, it says, Return to the Lord, Israel. Return. Flee to Christ and find life. Jesus said this on almost, it seems, every page of the gospel. He speaks of the way to eternal life is through him. And so do not leave here. Do not leave watching this tonight without confessing your sins and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and fleeing the wrath to come. Because all of us will have to account one day. And what if it's tomorrow? You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.